And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Shelby. Hey, guys, good morning. Hey, it's, uh, it's good to be with you guys today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry, and we're in the Gospel of Mark. So you can start finding chapter 12, and we're going to be in those verses today. I want to take a second and pray for you and ask you to pray for me. And I actually want to say up front, take heart. Take heart. The world is dark and it's complicated and we don't even know how to sort out the things going on in our own chest today. But the reality of the gospel of Jesus is that you do have a father and in Jesus he has overcome the world and even where you don't know what's going on in your own chest, he does know and he's actually present today to feed you. He's present today to give you everything that you need today. And that's not hype. That's not positive thinking. Those are the promises that we have in Jesus. So take a second and bow your heads and pray with me. Spirit of God, I love the fact that the Bible opens with you hovering over the formless, dark world. And that our Father spoke and into the chaos you brought order. And I just pray today that in the midst of all the complexities, the things we're confused about, the things we don't understand, the things that we feel far too weak to be able to confront, I pray that today you would help us to take refuge in you. I pray that your voice would speak again today. I pray that you would hover over the waters again today. I thank you that there's no person in this room that's facing insurmountable darkness or odds that are too great for you, I thank you that there's no person in this room that you've forgotten. I thank you that there's no struggle in this room that's lost on you, Jesus. And I thank you that you're actually present. I thank you that this is not a religious ritual that's empty, full of meaningless repetition, but I thank you that we're actually before the face of God. So today as we open your word, would you come and teach us? Would you be with us? Would you form us? Would you encourage us? Would you give us a couple of next steps as we follow you in the road of discipleship? We pray for your help today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible and just going verse by verse and section by section is that I'm consistently struck by the metacultural nature of God's word. And what I mean by that is, though the Bible was written in particular context by particular authors to particular people with particular questions, 2,000 years later, as we walk through a book of the Bible like the Gospel of Mark, we have these moments like today that feel like the biblical author was just writing to us. 
that he knew the complexities of 2022, that he knew what was happening in our polarized world, that he knew the ways in which we felt overwhelmed even by our own immaturity. And that's an evidence that God's word was true 2,000 years ago, and God's word is true today, and if Jesus doesn't come back, God's word will be true in 2,000 years. And so today what I want to do is two things. I want to walk through, first of all, this scribe who's a model for us of maturity. And I want to actually argue that it's impossible to rise in spiritual maturity if we're going to be emotionally and relationally stunted. You can't be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. Those two things go hand in hand. And what we have in this scribe is in some ways a guy that could kind of be like the patron saint of maturity in an anxious world. He's a reminder to each of us that the invitation to Jesus is an invitation to grow, to mature, to leave childish things behind. And so I want to show you a few things from our text today about the scribe, and then I want to move to the meat of our passage, which is Jesus talking about the great commandment. What does it mean to love God with the totality of your being? What does it mean that we're to love God with our hearts and our minds and our soul and our strength? And what does it mean to love neighbor as self? And so look at the scribe with me first. I want to show you three things about this guy. The first thing I want you to note is that this scribe is curious, not closed off. He's curious and not closed off. Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Okay, here's what's wild about this. If you've been with us for the last several months as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, have seen Jesus do things that have never happened in the history of Israel. Jesus has taught with authority that no one ever had. And Jesus has backed up his teaching with signs of his authority that no one had ever seen. He's taught in such a way that his authority was manifest to people that didn't even study God's law as scholars. Simple people, ordinary people, regular people heard Jesus teach, and at every turn, they're amazed by his authority. And it's not like Jesus just talked and didn't back it up. He then did things that demonstrated his authority. He spoke and storms were calmed and he took a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and multiplied it and fed multitudes. And the thing that's been baffling to me my entire life is that the religious leaders of Israel had opportunities to sit with Jesus, to ask Jesus questions, and until we get to this scribe, what we don't find in any of those encounters is one ounce of genuine curiosity. Like, even if you disagree with Jesus, even if you find Jesus offensive, even if you hate what Jesus is teaching, doesn't Jesus elicit rightful curiosity if you have an opportunity to ask him questions? And none of the scribes are ever curious. They ask Jesus questions, but they ask Jesus questions to manipulate and trap him. They ask Jesus questions to try to expose him. They ask him questions, not because they want the answers, but because they assume they have the answers already. And then we get to this scribe, and what you see is that he's watching this encounter between his peers, other scribes, and Jesus. And he hears Jesus answer wisely, and in the midst of hearing Jesus answer wisely, he's genuinely curious he wants to learn. He asked Jesus a question, not to trick Jesus. 
And he asked Jesus a question not to get Jesus to affirm his assumptions and current ideology. He asked Jesus a question because he actually genuinely thinks he has an opportunity to learn something about truth and to learn something about himself that he doesn't know. And I just want to say, in our moments, this is an invitation from God to actually cultivate curiosity instead of being closed off. It's been said, like probably your grandparents told you this, that human beings have two ears and one mouth, that we should listen twice as much as we talk. But we live in a cultural moment where everybody's got a hot take. Nobody's curious. Nobody wants to sit with someone that they disagree with and ask them genuinely, genuine questions. And in this particular moment, what this scribe is saying to us is that a posture of humility, like not assuming that you have all the answers or that you're fully arrived or that you're formed to a place where you need nothing else, is essential if we're going to come to Jesus with the posture of a learner and actually get something from him. He's genuinely thirsty for truth. And I just want to encourage us as a church, like maybe the most missional thing we could possibly do in 2022, and I, I love all the things that we're trying to do in caring for the poor and push back darkness grants and engaging neighbors and having our community groups spread throughout the city to love and serve people. All those things are good and wonderful, but maybe one of the most missional things that we could do in 2022 is just make a commitment before God that we're going to have less hot takes and more listening. <laughs> less hot takes and more curiosity. I mean, maybe the invitation for God for his people to grow up and be salt and light in the world is that what we need is to tweet less and ask better questions. Maybe we need to cultivate the kind of relationship with truth where we scroll less and flip more Bible pages. And what this scribe is modeling for us is the kind of maturity that's simple and humble that recognizes that there is truth that I don't know and I actually need that truth to grow up. And that truth is found in an encounter with Jesus where we ask him questions. So I'm not advocating for the kind of open-mindedness that uh, G.K. Chesterton made fun of when he said some people are so open-minded that their brains fall out. I'm not advocating for that kind of curiosity where without discernment you think that all ideas are equal. I'm advocating for the kind of curiosity that actually assumes that truth exists because God exists. And because we're limited and finite, we should approach our quest for truth with open ears and closed mouths. We should ask questions. This leads to a second thing that's really refreshing. And by the way, like, um, I didn't come up with this. It's in the Bible, so don't email me. Email Mark. Uh, the second thing we see is that this scribe is responsible. He's not tribal. He's responsible, not tribal. Look at what it says in verse 28. And one of the scribes, I actually am mesmerized by this guy because if anybody has the excuse to get caught up into the group think about Jesus, the ideology of the day, the ways in which the scribes have already assumed that Jesus is a false teacher, that Jesus is anti-law, that Jesus is a threat to the sacrificial system, that Jesus is a false teacher, this guy is a part of that framework he could be swept up with the crowd, but instead, here's what you see. This scribe is modeling for us the truth that we actually stand before God as image bearers. And, and track with me, one of the marks of image bearers is that we're responsible for our emotions and our decisions 
and our thinking. That this guy can't on the great day stand before God and point to the scribes and say, well, it's not my fault. These guys believe this about Jesus. This guy is responsible for God to take his own agency in his hands and to evaluate the group that he's a part of, not in light of groupthink, but in light of what is objectively real. And I think in this moment, in 2022, man, like this is one of the biggest things we need to recover. We live in a moment where we want to blame all of our groups for whatever we think and feel. We want to blame our family of origin for our stunted emotional health. We want to blame our political party for when we get ugly and hostile and polarized. We want to blame our church if we're not growing. We want to blame our circle of friends if we get caught up in the fervor and outrage of our moments. And what this scribe is doing in this moment is really powerful. He's modeling for us the truth of what it means to be human, that it's not an individualistic deal. He is a part of community. He's a part of the scribes. But the truth of what it means to be human is that you are going to give an account, as will I, before God for our lives. And that's a weighty thing. So my question, my question to you is, are you, are you enmeshed with whatever groups you're a part of where you don't know where you begin and they end? Your party? Your coworkers? even your church, where you're not critically thinking and evaluating what's true and trying to arrive at greater knowledge of Jesus, but you're just sort of going with the flow and caught up in the group thing? Or do you have the emotional health and responsibility before God to pull back from the group and actually say, on the great day, I don't stand before God with my dad or my mom or my stepdad or the leader of my political party or the people that I read the most blogs from I stand before the face of God as a human being that gives an account for my life. Maturity requires, maturity requires that we actually take responsibility. And then the last thing I'll mention about the scribe is that he's reflective, not outraged. He's reflective, not outraged. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, note that this is the perfect opportunity for the scribe to be offended with Jesus. The scribe was on the inside of the inside of the religious elite. He was an unbelievable scholar. He would have memorized entire books of the Old Testament. He could recite them from memory. He was a double, triple, quadruple PhD in the religious life of Israel. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Which Jesus means is a profound compliment that, hey, you're really close to coming to faith in me. You're asking really good questions. The spirit of God is working in your heart. But he could have easily interpreted that as a slight against him. He could have puffed out his chest and said, how dare you say that I'm not far from the kingdom of God. I'm in the dead center of the kingdom of God. I'm a dadgum scribe. Okay, this is an unbelievable example of maturity that this guy, instead of being outraged at Jesus, he, see, he hears something that's potentially offensive. And instead of tweeting at Jesus or blogging about Jesus or ranting about Jesus or gossiping about Jesus, here's what he does. He just shuts up. He thinks. He prays. And I think that this is really powerful for us. 
like in a moment of so much outrage. And by the way, it's ubiquitous. I don't care what your party is. I don't care whether you think you're progressive or conservative. I don't care what your cause is. In a moment of unbelievable outrage, what we lack in this world is the kind of reflective response to teaching and to input and to questions that actually assumes that, hey man, like I probably have work to do and room to grow and probably the best response when I hear something that makes me mad is not first to react, but first to shut my mouth and go and listen and pray and ask questions about what God might be teaching me. Now, all of that was free. That was not part of our sermon. Okay, so let's get into the meat of our text now because what's gonna happen is because he's gonna ask Jesus a question about the law. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there's all kinds of confusion and questions about the law. And if you're new to the church or if you just became a follower of Jesus, let me tell you, you're gonna hear all kinds of stuff about the Old Testament as you try to figure out how to follow Jesus. There are tons of questions because the Old Testament is full of all kinds of commands and rules and requirements. Amen. I've had a few buddies over the years that weren't Christians and they wanted to read the Bible and they picked up with a book like Exodus or Leviticus and they came to me and they're like, what is happening? The rules and the commands and the washings and the clothes and all the things that the Old Testament people of God had to do. What do you do with that? And how do you reconcile this message of the New Testament, which is we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, with how we relate to the Old Testament? Questions like, do we need the law? Like, does it mean to be a follower of Jesus that we just lay the entire Old Testament in a shallow grave and just, let's just not talk about it. It's kind of weird. Or, or are we saved by faith in Jesus plus obeying the law? Or is there a difference between the different kinds of law in the Old Testament? Like the purity laws about washing and ritual? And then the the civil laws that governed Israel, like they were a nation and there was all kinds of laws that related to the governance of the nation versus the moral laws. Are there laws that are just sort of timeless and ageless that apply to all people? And in the course of church history, like tons of ink has been spilt about how do we relate to the law in light of the work of Jesus? What does grace say to the law? And I think that there's a tiny overview that I can give you to help you with this text and help you read your Bible. Um, The best of Protestant thought, and this is just an overview, acknowledges three things at least about the law that are really important. The first thing it acknowledges is that the law of the Old Testament first and foremost reveals the character of God. When God gives commands in the Old Testament, what he's actually doing is he's revealing the kind of God that he is. His heart for the outcast his desire for us to honor one another's bodies, his care for the foreigner and the stranger, his desire for us to live with one another in a way that's kind and charitable and loving. It shows us God's character, that God's holy, that God's just, that God's kind, that God is not defined by anger. He is not anger, he is love, but he does because he is love have righteous anger when we do things that dishonor him and others. The second thing about the law is that the law shows us how badly we need a savior. Now, let me give you just a quick example. Um, How many people have read the Old Testament teachings on the Ten Commandments and you felt like that was God's vision for ultimate varsity humanity? Like if we could keep the Ten Commandments, we would be like 
God would be so pleased and we would be so awesome and the world would be such a great place. Okay, I actually have a different take on that. I think that the Ten Commandments is just the bare minimum standard to live in a city that's not terrible. I don't think it's varsity humanity. I think the Ten Commandments is just like, hey man, at least do this stuff. Like, don't kill each other. Don't steal each other's stuff. Don't be liars. Don't sleep with somebody that's not your spouse. Like, that stuff just makes it really bad on your street. And I think we've read those and we've thought, well, like, that's the standard for humanity. And then equally wrongly, we've read the Ten Commandments and we've often thought that we were crushing it. Like, oh man, I'm doing great. I've never killed anybody. And the problem with that is that Jesus shows up and even the Ten Commandments, he radically digs into by saying, hey, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. And we're all like, yep, most of us obeyed that one. Check. And Jesus then adds, hey, but like, I tell you that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder internally. And then we're all like, oh, like that was kind of like the lowest bar of the Ten Commandments. And if I broke that one, I'm kind of hosed on the other nine. The Ten Commandments is not the highest standard that humanity could achieve to. It's just a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us just how broken we are. That's why Paul said that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. In the law, we get a telescope to see God's character, but we also get a microscope to see that we can't even do the basic stuff that would be required to treat each other with some kind of dignity and respect and to offer God the worship he deserves. So this leads to the third thing about the law. The law, after we meet Jesus, is a guide to the will of God. It doesn't save us. Christ saves us by his grace and as we trust him. But the law then becomes a way to guide and shape the way that we should live to honor God and to honor one another. So with that in mind, that's a brief overview. We could talk for days about that. There've been oceans of ink spilled on the law, but that gives us a setup to get into our text. Take your Bible, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Let me remind you what it said. And one of the scribes came up and he heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, here's what's happening. Um, it was popular for the rabbis to try to condense down all of the complexities of the law in a simple overarching statement. Uh, I think it was Rabbi Hillel that talked about how could you teach the law while standing on one leg, right? The scribes had like over 600 different rules that were a part of the law. And they all tried to simplify and boil it down and give you handles. Like how can you teach the law to your kids? How can you remember the law? 
What Jesus is doing here in response to the scribe is he's actually taking all the law of God in the Old Testament and he's making a delicious balsamic reduction. He's boiling it all down. He's cooking it down to the essence of all the law. And what he tells us is first about a revelation of God's beauty and his worth. It's first about God. Jesus says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our soul, and all of our strength. This command is describing wholehearted, all of life, integrated worship of God in response to God's infinite value, beauty, and worth. Here's what he's saying. If you really see God rightly, if you see his wisdom and his splendor and his goodness and his kindness and his holiness, the response to really seeing God rightly is not that you just love and worship God with your brain or just your body or just your affections, but that all of life responds to God in a desire that there's not one room of the mansion of your soul that you cut him out of, but it all becomes his because he's worthy of all of it. Jesus is saying, that in the realm of the heart, that's relationality, that's love, that's the realm of your affections and your desires. That's a place where delight and devotion is born. God is so beautiful that he's worthy of your heart. Jesus is talking about the mind. That's the realm of rationality. That's the realm of truth and thinking and learning and intellect and comprehension. Jesus is saying, if you really see God, you'll not just love him with your heart and your affections, but you'll realize that he's infinitely wise and infinitely true. He's worthy of you thinking deeply about and thinking rightly about. And the soul is kind of complicated. Like we're Westerners, we don't know what to do with the soul. But the soul is the realm of meaning. The old philosophers used to talk about this idea of telos, which is the idea of the end for which we were created. It's like our purpose, our meaning, what are people for, Wendell Berry used to ask. And the realm of telos is about the end for which we exist. So when Jesus says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, what he's saying is when you see the beauty and worth of God, you realize that the end for which you were created is him. Like the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts out with the great question, what's the chief end of man? And the answer is to love God, to glorify him, to worship him, to enjoy him forever. The idea being that soul is where we realize that the end of our life is not found in more money or more stuff or the approval of neighbors or even success in our career. Or the, Although our careers matter to God, the end that we were created for is to say, I exist for you, to know you, to love you, to enjoy you. And then strength is the realm of action. It's justice, it's holiness, it's habits, it's effort, it's behavior, it's bodies. And what Jesus is saying is that God deserves this kind of worship. He deserves worship with your heart because God is relational and infinitely beautiful. He's not described first and foremost as rationality in the New Testament. He's described as love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who've eternally loved each other. And it's in God's love that he created the world. He created human beings to share in his love, to know his love, to be in relationship with him. And when you see God rightly, especially when you see his pursuit of you in Jesus, the right response is your heart being his. God is worthy of your mind because God is true. No truth exists outside of God's word and command. That if you're a scientist in the room, like 
Um, whatever your field is, the pursuit of understanding physics, the pursuit of mathematics, the pursuit of, of, uh, of medicine, understanding the ecology of the world in which we live, these are all things that God spoke into existence. And God is worthy of you thinking deeply and trying to think rightly about him. And strength, man, strength is, strength is a reminder that God cares about this world. He cares about what we do with our hands and what we build and what we speak, what we make, how we touch one another, how we care for one another, the way we handle food and drink. And God is infinitely worthy of worship with your soul because he's the one that created you. And as St. Augustine said, your soul is restless until it finds its rest in him. He's the end for which we were made. So what Jesus is saying is first and foremost about God. It's not even first and foremost about what we do. What he's telling us is that when you see God rightly, it calls for an all-of-life response of love and worship and obedience. To worship God with our heads and not our hearts reduces God to just cold orthodoxy. And I know a bunch of you guys were raised in that church. To just know the right things about God but to not really care. To worship God with the heart and not the mind is just to sort of think that as long as we have good vibes and are feeling good about God and feeling good about ourselves, everything's cool. Even if the God that we have in our mind is completely made up or in our own image or even offensive to the actual God that exists. To try to worship God with our soul but not our strength is to be a hypocrite. It's to say, hey God, you're the end for which I was created. You're my purpose and my meaning, but that doesn't apply to my time or my body or my job or my marriage, or my kids, or my checkbook. What Jesus is saying is that to see God is to see that he's worthy of all of life. But then the great commandment also reveals our need for Jesus. Because let's just be as honest as we can. I know it's church in Oklahoma, no place for being honest, but let's try it. All right? The great commandment reveals that we haven't done any of these for more than one or two seconds ever in our entire life. We don't worship God with all of our heart. Our loves are all out of whack. We love things that are less than God with greater love than what we love God. We love stuff more than we love people. Our loves are all twisted up. I mean, for 16 years since we planted this church, almost every Sunday, I've sung with you guys these songs that we sing about God's character and his attributes and his son Jesus pursuing us. And I'm telling you, I, I don't even know what the percentage is, but more than 50% of the time, I'm sitting here thinking, man, I believe this is true. I wish it was in my heart right now. I wish I felt it. I wish there was like the appropriate fire and desire and zeal that matched what we just said, but there's a gap. We don't love God with all of our mind. Like, we don't think about God often. We don't think about God rightly. We don't love God with all of our soul. Everyone in this room, we, we are all chasing a thousand different ends that we think we were created for. If people just approve of me and like me, I'll be complete. If I just have enough money, I'll be complete. If I succeed enough in my career, I'll be complete. If I get married, I'll be complete. If my kids are okay, I'll be complete. The list goes on and on and on to infinitum. And we don't love the Lord our God with all of our strength. Nobody in here can say that we've really like shed our own blood in resisting sin <laughs> or bent our backs in service of God and one another. 
We just don't do that. We have moments of it. We taste a little bit of it. But we fall short on every category. Jesus is saying the great commandment shows us God and the great commandment shows us how we fall short of what that God deserves. And this leads to the third thing. The great commandment has been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. Did Jesus love his father with all of his heart? Yes. Jesus lived out of affection for the father, love for the father. He delighted in the father. He desired the father. His communion with the father was continual. And he put his desire for the father above his desire for anything else. Repeatedly, continually, always. Did Jesus love his father with his mind? Like scripture says that uh, Jesus in the wilderness said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then what we see in Jesus is that he took that seriously. He committed his father's word to memory. He lived by it. He resisted temptation with it. He thought rightly and he thought deeply about his father. Did Jesus love his father with all of his soul? Was his father's will the end for which Jesus was living? Think of what Jesus himself said. He said he came to do the will of him who sent him. His end was not his own will or his own purpose. It was all about his father, submission to his father. And there's never been anybody that worshiped the father with all of his strength like Jesus. He did bend his back in loving his father and serving him and serving us. His sweat poured out of his pores as drops of blood. His hands were pierced. He literally poured out the last shred of his strength on the cross. Jesus is the only person that's ever lived that fully loved the Father with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength. And what scripture tells us is that Jesus did all that for our behalf in our place because we didn't. And the gospel tells us that in the atonement, Jesus though he kept the law to the letter, was counted as rebels like you and me. And he paid the penalty for us breaking the law repeatedly. He bore the wrath that we deserve. What that means is that now, track with me on this, because this is the essence of the gospel. This will help you to have assurance tomorrow morning when you don't feel like God loves you. If an accuser was to come into God's presence and God's court and to point you out and to point me out and to say to the Father, She doesn't love you with all of her heart. The father would rightly say, yeah, that's true. But my son did and my son does and he lives to make intercession for her. Or if an accuser said, he doesn't love you with all of his mind. The father could say, I know that. He falls short of that, but my son perfectly has loved me with all of his mind and loves me thus still, and the reality is he lives to make intercession for him. The accuser could say he doesn't love you with all of his soul. He doesn't love you with all of his strength, and the father would rightly say, I know that, I see that, but my son did and does and makes intercession, and it's through the righteousness of my son that I can receive my adopted sons and daughters as complete. Jesus perfectly kept the law on our behalf. But this leads to the last dynamic today. And that's at the great commandment. It it shows us God and it shows us how we fall short. And it leads us to Jesus' fulfillment of the law. But it also, lastly, 
the great commandment shapes our kingdom priorities. It helps us figure out how do we live and where are we going if we're following the Holy Spirit and what's God inviting us into? Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What Jesus is saying to that scribe, which is really powerful, is that entrance into the kingdom of God is only through Jesus. Knowing the law is insufficient and trying to keep the laws insufficient because you can't do it. But trusting in Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and walking with Jesus in the power of the Spirit invites us into a new dynamic in which the totality of our being is led by the Spirit to start to learn to do this. That we're invited by the Spirit to love God with our heart. That's why the scripture says that he's the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's talking about your heart, learning how much the Father loves you and responding to that love. To love God with our minds. The spirit of God leads us into truth. He convicts us where we've created a wish dream of God, like a God in our image that is like the Old Testament idols that can't save and can't speak and can't do anything. A God that doesn't offend us, a God that never disagrees with us, a God that never challenges us. The Spirit of God can convict us and lead us into truth so that we can love God with our minds. The Spirit of God is so faithful to point out and to guide us when we're making marriage or family or career or pleasure or money or self or approval or a thousand other things, the end for which we were created. He says, no, man, that's not, that's not why you exist. And the Spirit of God is so faithful when we're weak and we can't worship God with our strength. When you feel too broken to resist temptation or to love your spouse or to be a person with open-handed generosity when you're freaked out about your own life. The Spirit of God when we're weak can help us to have his strength to love God with the totality of our being. And all this is true of the second commandment. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself There is no other commandment greater than these. The work of Jesus is a work to bring us back into right relationship with God vertically and back into right relationship with each other horizontally. And this is the summation of the totality of the law. And it's not that we can do it on our own, it's that we couldn't and that's why he came. It's that we still can't and that's why he intercedes. And it's that we can grow in it because he sent the Holy Spirit to help guide us and shape us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> With nobody looking around for just a second, I, I read a Catholic, art, a Catholic author several years ago that was talking about our lives being like a mansion with a lot of different rooms. And our negotiations with God is often like we want to rent him a room or two. And he's really patient. He's really kind. He'll be like, okay, I'll take that room. But he's never satisfied with that. He keeps asking for the rooms that we keep locked up. And he keeps pursuing more and more rooms. He wants to occupy more rooms. And growth in discipleship is just simply learning to keep opening more rooms to him. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's, it's holistic. It's integrated. It's all of life worship. So I just encourage you to take a second before we pray and ask the question, what are the rooms that you have boarded up and locked? And God's really kind. He's really patient. But he's also relentless. He wants all your rooms.
He wants to open the windows. He wants to sweep them out. He wants to get the door open. So what are the rooms that you're afraid to give him? What are the rooms that it would require looking at his love on the cross to trust him with? So Father, I pray for myself and my friends. Pray, Lord, that you would lead us into surrendering more of our lives, trusting you with more of our lives. God, forgive us for lip service worship. Forgive us for disintegrated worship that's heart without mind and mind without heart and soul without strength and strength without soul. And I just pray, Lord, that you would teach us as whole people to respond to your beauty and your love and your grace. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.